I'm Michelle. I'm Rob. And this is Two, Two Librarians, Librarians Walk Into a Shelf. We are going to talk today about our very first pick for the Two Librarians Walk Into a Shelf book club. But before we get into that, we got each other presents. That's right. We got each other book presents. Free bookmas presents from our stacks. Yep. And I knew exactly what I wanted to get for you. Well, yeah. I didn't, but. But you found something good anyway? I think so. Okay. I think so. So do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. All right. So this is my pick from Michelle. And my pick is available on Hoopla. And it's a New York Times bestselling author, which really gets me excited. Jill Shalvis, Hot Winter's Nights. A Heartbreaker Bay story. Are you excited for that one? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, as you know, there's two books on Hoopla called Hot Winter's Night. And I, I found the, the, wrong the other one, one first. first. And you're like, there's no half naked cowboy on the book that I picked for you. And I said, well, that's, you know, and you're like, no, not that <laughs> not one. Not that one. So, yeah, Jill Chavez, Hot Winter's Night. That's my book. All right. And for me, Rob chose A Very Merry Christmas. It's three short novellas in one. The editor's Lori Foster. I mean, we've got tales by Laurie Foster, Gemma Bruce, and Janice Maynard. It says, though the weather outside is frightful, the hunky men are so delightful. And these three ladies are about to discover that Christmas is not only the most wonderful time of the year, but also the sexiest. Yeah, my grandma used to read stuff like that. I think all our grandmas did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's that's our book miss exchange. We will talk about that those books sometime in uh, December. Yeah. So, all right, now a rogue by any other name was our book club pick for the first two librarians walk into a shelf book club. You're excited about this, right? I am. Before we get started, because I know you have a little history that I found very fascinating about you in this book, we actually did have one email from a Jill S who let us know that uh, she was a fan of these books. Evidently, the, what are they, the Scoundrel series, Rules, Rules of Scoundrels. Scoundrels. And uh, Jill says she's read them and she listened and heard that we were talking about this one. So she reread that and really enjoys these stories. She did say that she does not believe that I read it, though. Can you we did, do though, right? I did. Are you sure? I can prove it. Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions. Let's have them. All right. Penelope has some sisters. How many sisters does she have? Penelope has four sisters, the twins that are already married, mm -hmm. and then the younger sisters, Pippa and Olivia. Wow. Okay. Did you read it all the way through? I don't know. Did I? Uh, did you learn any new words? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay. My vocabulary has blown up after this book. All right. I know what a Marquess is. What is a Marquess? It's a title between Duke and Earl. Not the Duke of Earl, <laughs> but between Duke <laughs> and Earl. Okay. Dowry. What is a dowry? Dowry is a prize that a man gives another man for marrying his daughter. <laughs> um, <laughs> gaming hell. That's a casino. And yes. I think they should still be called that. Gaming house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the ton, which is the French word for fashionable. They're the kind of the hoity-toity, yes. uh, the uh, upper class. Yeah. So society. Yeah. So High society types. So my vocabulary expanded. I haven't learned four new words in like the last 10 years added together. So I'm very thrilled that I've expanded my vocab. So we read A Rogue by Any Other Name by Sarah McLean for our book club. 
It's the first one in the Rules of Scoundrel series. At the beginning of the story, we're introduced to young Michael Bourne. He is in process of losing everything he owns at a card game against his friend's father. And at the end of the game, Michael is ruined and penniless. Move forward a little in time, nine years later, and he has built with his friends an extremely successful and exclusive gaming club. And for anyone that isn't familiar with, like, the history of gaming clubs or societies in London, it's an actual thing. It's not made up for these books. There were different tiers of gaming clubs that you had, like, the fancy ones that everybody wanted everyone to see you go into. And then you had, like, the middle tier ones that were kind of gross. And then you had, like, the secret ones, and this was an actual thing that they did. Like, in the story, the club is set up to be, like, super secret, but everybody wants to be a part of it. And that's rooted in the history of gambling, basically, in London. But the the one in the book is even got a super, super secret. It does have a super secret. It has a secret side of the club for ladies. That's right, which... Probably never really happened, but... No, that that part did not happen. In the world of the book... Yes. It's actually a pretty cool idea. Yeah. So... The club in the book is called The Fallen Angel, and it's one of these in-between clubs. It's not super seedy, and it's not the one that everybody wants to see you going into, but everybody wants to be a part of it anyway. And I think my favorite part of it is the four friends that are that own the club. Yeah. So you have Bourne and his friends, Temple and Cross and Chase... And when they start to banter and, like, poke fun at each other and maybe punch each other in the face a little bit, I think they are amusing as hell. Yeah, they're they're like the best friends in a rom-com. Yes. This whole thing is like a rom-com. Oh, for sure. And these guys together punching each other in the face and, and being guys. Yeah, it's playing like, cards. It's that goofy stuff that the characters do in the rom-com. So yeah. it follows kind of that template, which I thought it's a comfort to watch a, a movie like that, it's it's certainly a formula. Mm-hmm. And then to read a book like that, you kind of know where it's going. So it's very familiar and it's very enjoyable. Yeah, it's amusing for sure. Yes. Do you want to introduce us to Penelope? Well, Penelope Marbury mm-hmm. is uh, 28 years old and she's unmarried. So at 28 unmarried she's a huge shame in her family and she's she's cool with it she never found a love match she almost got married she was engaged it didn't work out because that guy actually was in love with someone else but it brought huge shame to well if not the family certainly penelope's mom (laughs) got her mom (laughs) yeah i kind of you know i i I get the time that this was written in but I, i still it could be a very southern story and the mom is definitely that southern mom that'll put her wrist to her head and clutches oh, her pearls. Lord, yeah, <laughs> that was Penelope's mom. Penelope is introduced as a spinster. Yeah. So, <sighs> fun fact about that word, you right? Ready? Yes. The term spinster comes from the history of weaving in England. So, there wasn't very many ways for a woman to earn her own way in medieval or regency or in Wardian England. They were, you know, governess of a house or a housekeeper or whatever. But even then, they were only worth something if they were married to a man. The only way they could own property was if they were married and had property through the mail. But when women started owning their own trades, the main one being spinning fiber to make cloth, they earned their own money and could pay their own way and did not need a man. 
So the term spinster originally just meant a woman who owned her own business spinning and weaving cloth, and it turned into an insult later to just, you know, as to put someone, a woman down for being unmarried. But that was a choice that those women made. Because she had times. to get a job. Because she had to, to get a job. To support herself. And I didn't know that history, but at 28, unmarried and, and her life is over, just just cracks me up. But I understand <laughs> both in the world that this story takes place and maybe in the South, I understand how horrible that is. <laughs> but the nice thing about Penelope is she's a very spirited, independent character. She's uh, She doesn't want to just get married to get married. She actually wants to fall in love and to be in love with that person and share a life. And she's stubborn in all the best ways. You know, she's really a great character. She's definitely the Kate Hudson of this story. Yes, absolutely. The Kate Hudson in the rom-com. There's this love triangle. Uh, when they were younger, Penelope was friends with Michael Bourne and then their friend Tommy. Mm-hmm. And they hung out. And even when they were kids, Penelope and Bourne kind of, I think, had a little bit of a thing for each other, but would never really admit it. Mm -hmm. And they grow up into Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. Right. And uh, now there's a fear that her younger sisters, Olivia and Pippa, won't get married because she's not married. So her dad has thrown in a nice piece of land into her dowry, hoping to attract not the best person, but just a person. Like, like a, a, any person? Any I person guess. that shows up, the Ugh. first person to show up and, and vow love and marriage and ask her, her hand in marriage. They're doing it for the land. Yeah. And she's enraged for a couple reasons. That land that he has added to her dowry, of course, is the land that Michael lost gambling to Tommy's dad all those years before. So the sob story for Michael here is his parents died. He inherits the land. He's kind of, you know, like what happens to a teenage boy who has all the access to the land and money and whatever he wants? Well, he kind of goes off the rails. The next thing you know, he's gambled his estate away. Gone. Yeah, and then somehow that land ends up in Penelope's father's ownership, and he connects that land to Penelope's dowry. And now Michael's like, well, I really want that land, so I guess I really need to go get Penelope. And she's excited at first because it's like, oh, my goodness, it's Michael. Yeah. He's back, and he wants me. Nope, he wants the land. So one night, Penelope decides to go wander around her lands because they're hers now. They're in her dowry. One day she will kind of own them once she is married. And so she like puts on her coat and gets a lantern and goes out in the snow in the middle of December and goes traipsing around like an abandoned manor house. And while she's traipsing around outside, she notices there is a man traipsing around outside. She decides it's a pirate. It's not a pirate. It's Michael. And he has come to look over the lands that he would like to have back. The next thing you know, they're like yelling at each other in the house and they spend the night together in the house and her dad finds out and he comes shooting a gun up. Yes. It's kind uh, of a shotgun marriage at that point. And, yeah. And then Penelope and Michael make a deal where they're going to get married. He can have his land, but she only agrees to this if he agrees to return to society, reclaim his title and help get her sisters decent marriages so that they don't have to deal with a marriage, a loveless marriage. 
but she she does throw one other thing in there. She wants to visit the fallen angel, the, his gaming hell, oh, yeah. one time, and he loses his mind. <laughs> he can't stand. He does not want her there. He doesn't want her anywhere near there. And kind of the theme running through that is that Michael's afraid that everything he touches he ruins. Right. So he's afraid that his fallen angel gaming hell is going to ruin Penelope. She's too pure and too good to be introduced to that part of society. And as soon as she's told no. She, she does wants. everything <laughs> she can to get inside. And then it happens for her because one of Michael's partners gives her an invite and that invite opens the entire place up to her. Whatever she wants to do when she's there, she can do it. And he loses his mind. Yeah, he can't. He can't deal. But he can't kick her out either because. Because she's she, been given the password. That's she right. Can get anytime she wants. And she loves that. And, uh, you know, stuff happens. They fall in love. They were already they realize, in love. I they think. realize that they love each other. So part of what makes a romance novel a romance is the will they or won't they. Right. So they clearly care for each other. And you can see that as the omniscient third person reader. Right. But the will they or won't they, the thing that's keeping them apart, her deciding that she can't handle him not loving her. So she doesn't want to push it. Because she knows he's just acting. But really, he's not acting when they're in society and around other people to make other people believe that they're the love match so that her sisters can also have love matches. She thinks it's all an act and it's not really an act. And it's the will they or the won't they and the stubbornness and the, oh, my God, will you just talk to her? Yes. And <laughs> that drove me nuts. It's like I've just spent six pages reading your thoughts. I know what you're thinking, but yet you open your mouth and you just make everything work. So it reminded me of me. I, well, it's just like, say the wrong thing every time you open your mouth, Michael. Romance novels are a billion dollar industry for a reason. <laughs> I guess so. So it's the will they, the won't they, the hijinks, the butterfly in your stomach moments. Are they falling in love? Will they fall in love? I don't know. Nobody knows. But, you know, it's a romance novel. So the other thing that makes a romance novel is that it's a happily ever after in the end. So regardless of all the will they or won't they in between, you know, at the end, they will end up together. So it's it's 100 percent a comfort read. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that because I mean, it was again, it's not something that I would have ever picked for myself, but reading it. I mean, it wasn't a chore. It was actually it was an enjoyable story. I mean, again, I put it in the context of a rom com, which I'll sit and watch. Mm hmm. And it works on the same level. You know, it's the same template. Yeah. And uh, it was it's funny. The characters are characters that you kind of, you know, you, you can definitely believe in. You know, you get wrapped up in them. And, uh, you know, there's no big thinks in here or anything. But uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really cool. And I really did uh, read it, Jill. <laughs> and everybody he else. He did. He wouldn't just say that. I wouldn't. No, and I didn't pick something that I didn't think you would like. Oh, I, I know, but that was so outside. <laughs> My, okay, I owe you a Western or something. Well, I mean, now I've got this Hot Winter's Night for Christmas read, so. Sorry? No, you're not. <laughs> I'm not. I think you'll enjoy it. It's another rom-com. <laughs> it's a comfort. So this one was uh, this was funny throughout. Uh, there's a great scene at the beginning uh, before Michael and Penelope reconnect where Penelope and her family are at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. That's just one of those scenes. They're hard. They're hard to write because you've got all these different characters and everyone's doing something. They're all eating. But then there's all this dialogue. 
and this younger sisters are there and one's a jerk and one's just like that little sister that makes all the side <laughs> comments and the dad's like this I don't want to say a doofus, but he's a dad character. And he's kind of like, you know, he lives in a world of his wife and his four daughters. So you can kind of see this guy kind of, you know, he's been king all day or whatever. And he kind of just wants to kick his shoes off and not listen to it. Not all of them come to him with some problem. And the mom is that Southern mom, you know, in my mind is just like, oh, Lord, you're never going to get married now. Right. That scene of them at the table was just it was wonderfully written. It's hilarious. That's kind of when I got way into the book. That scene kind of pulled me in because I was laughing. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was uh, amusing. It was entertaining. And, uh, you know, I stuck with it. So well, good. thank you. I'm glad it wasn't a chore. It wasn't. It was actually pretty fun. So what else are you reading right now? Well, after that, I've gotten back to... Westerns? Well, I took a week off and I caught up on some nonfiction And I read a really great book called Bronson's Loose about the making of the entire Death Wish series with Charles Bronson. And this was a book I always wanted to read, but I didn't ever want to pay for it. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Okay. There's only so much space in my house. Like, there's only so many books I can keep dust off of. (laughs) This one's by Paul Talbot, Bronson's Loose, and it kind of does a deep dive into the making of the movies, which if you know anything about the Death Wish movies, the first one was a really huge hit. And then uh, years later, Canon started making these sequels that were so crazy, like by the third one. This vigilante's walking down the street with a bazooka, blown away bad guys, which is insane. That's just how the series was. And this book had a lot of good background information. And it is available on Hoopla, which just totally shocked me because it didn't seem like the kind of book that I would find on Hoopla. But if you go in there and look long enough, you're going to find all kinds of crazy stuff. So Something for everyone. That's right. So if you're into the vigilante movies or the Death Wish movies or Charles Bronson, because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of information about Charles Bronson, who was a great actor and was in a lot of stuff. Uh, Bronson's Loose by Paul Talbot. What about you? Uh, recently started The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. And it's another Regency romance series. This one is the first in the Bridgerton series. And the reason why I picked that one up is because it's about to be a Netflix series. Oh, okay. So on December 25th, the Bridgerton Netflix series premieres. So if you have access to that, I think it'll be really good. The pictures so far look really good, like the costuming and and everything. Um, It's basically the books are the story of the eight Bridgerton siblings trying to find love or in some cases trying to desperately not find it, but finding it anyway. I'm looking forward to that. So I started that one. You don't have to read those in order, okay? but you get little bits and pieces of the rest of the family if you read them in order. Okay. But this one, the Duke and I is basically Simon has inherited his father's title. He's a Duke now. He doesn't really care. He doesn't want to get married. He doesn't want any of it because his dad was kind of a jerk and he doesn't want any part of that. So his best friend is a Bridgerton, is the oldest Bridgerton. And Simon decides to ask his best friend's sister if they'll be in a pretend engagement so that people will just lay off him and stop sending their daughters to him. So if he can say he's engaged, they'll stop sending eligible bachelorettes to his house because they want their daughter to be married to a duke. So they enter in the fake, the trope of the fake engagement, the fake boyfriend thing. You know, do they or don't they fall in love? Well, it's a romance novel. You know what's going to happen in the end. But the rest of it is they're playing the fake engagement trope. I feel like I've seen this movie. You probably have. With Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds? Yes. The proposal? Yes. So we revisit the same tropes over and over because they're comforting. Yes. (laughs) And people enjoy them. So you'll see lots of 
not all romances follow a trope, but there are some, you know, some people are just like super into the hate, you know, like enemies to lovers or fake boyfriends or whatever. So fake and you've never read these, the series before. I've or? read a couple. But okay. not in order. And okay. I've never read the first one. So this is the first time I've read the first one. Did you read all of the Rules of the Scoundrel? I did. Okay. Do you need to read those in order? It's better if you do because the last one has an amazing twist. You kind of told me a little bit about that, which I don't. I was like, what? Yeah. So I might. I don't know. You'll never just, know because I'm going to read them on my phone. That's fine. You can let me know if you get to that one and, and, <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah. You could just skip to the fourth one probably. I could. But one of them's about Pippa too. I liked her. Yeah. The little smart mouth. Uh, one good Earl deserves a lover. <laughs> the titles are so good. <laughs> are you reading anything else? <laughs> yes. I'm reading a nonfiction called The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. And this is an interesting look at different colors and hues, both historical and modern. And it gives a short history on why the pigment came to be and who or why or what made that pigment important. So an example is the pigment that we know is Indian yellow. Its history is kind of gross. The story goes that there is a population of cows in India that are only fed mango leaves and then they gather their urine and dry it out and make it into a yellow pigment that is then sold to make paint. They don't do that anymore. It's all artificially created pigment now. But originally, like the great masters with the color Indian yellow, it would have smelled like cow pee. Wow. Anyway, it's fascinating. There's all kinds of history of all kinds of different pigments. Like the reason why it's called Payne's Gray is an artist in the Netherlands. His last name was Payne and he needed a gray for all the hazy, weird gray clouds in the Netherlands. (laughs) So he created this specific color of gray. And now we have Payne's Gray. So a lot of these colors were crayons, right? Because didn't Crayola have the crazy names too? <laughs> like Robin's Egg Blue yeah, and Macaroni and Cheese. <laughs> well, some of the crayons do have the same colors as these like older pigments like Cerulean and Ochre. Okay. So, and Sienna. That's a super old paint. Wow. Anyway, the book's really cool and it's the pages have the color of the hue that they're talking about. And it's like each little pigment has like a page or so to read through. So it's easy to like pick up, read a little bit, put it down, pick it up later. And it's a cute book. Cool. What else you got? Well, I don't know if it was the influence of reading A Rogue by any other name, but I watched a musical. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen this. It's not something we have in the collection. It's something that I streamed. Uh, It's Valley Girl. It's the remake of a 1983 Classic, classic 1983 movie with Nicolas Cage and Deborah Foreman. And people have hated that they remade it and they remade it as a musical. And I wasn't sure how that worked out, but it makes sense within the movie because it's a it's a mom and a daughter now. And the daughter's just broke up with her girlfriend. So the mom wants to tell her the story about when she had her first love. And she starts telling about how they were hanging out at the mall and they were shopping all day. And then it breaks out into dance. And and then the music, like kind of like a record scratch stops. And the daughter says, you guys were dancing in the mall. And she says, well, that's how I remember it. So it's a very romanticized (laughs) movie. It's been reimagined as a musical, which is not my favorite type of movie. But there's a couple that I uh, that I've enjoyed. And this one was kind of just hit all the right marks. 
the the music was all great, but it wasn't usually the original people singing it. It was the cast of characters singing it. It just was unique enough. It, I would compare it to Greece as far as you know breaking out in song and dance for certain things, and uh, it never got annoying. Uh, I would love for you to be able to check it out from the library, but we haven't got it yet. The best I could find on Hoopla has the soundtrack. If you want to listen to the soundtrack, okay. Hopefully, we get that. That was a fun one, but yeah. So reading romances, watching romances, watching romance uh, musicals. Twenty twenty, man. Anything can happen. Got to get that comfort in somewhere. That's right. You're finding weird comforts all of a sudden. Yeah. It's like, I don't know who I am. But you can find people from the library all over the internet. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us anywhere podcasts are streamed. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Leave us a comment. Let us know how you're doing. And if you read the book, let us know if you read A Rogue by any other name. And if you liked it, we'd love to hear hear from you. Shout out to the Cherokee, Shawnee, Yuchi, and Chickasaw nations whose land we now inhabit. Take a minute and learn a little bit about the Native American cultures that inhabited this land before us for Native American Heritage Month. And remember, don't Don't trust trust robots. robots. The views expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Huntsville-Madison County Library System. For more information on the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, visit us online at hmcpl.org. If you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed today, visit your local library, which is us. No representation is made that your librarian is more knowledgeable than other librarians or that they have any expertise on your particular project.